Hello and welcome to episode 106 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com and with me this week is Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Carl is also the host of the 30 Love Tennis podcast, so check that out for conversations over the last few years with various characters from around the tennis world, all in 30 minutes or less. This will probably be more than 30 minutes, as our episodes often are, and we're talking in particular about the events of the Monte Carlo Masters last week. We'll probably dip our toe on a few other topics as well, but lots happening in Monte Carlo with Nadal and Djokovic and Tsitsipas and Rublev and really the whole the whole shape of what the ATP is looking like these days was encapsulated by this week in Monte Carlo. So here's what I want to start with. Um, Djokovic lost to Dan Evans in, I guess it was the, the round of 16. Rafael Nadal lost to Andre Rublev in the quarterfinals. And I couldn't help but think until a few years ago, there were always these stats floating around that, yes, occasionally people beat Federer and Nadal, but I just remember these stats saying that like the people who who upset Roger Federer, they would lose their next match like 9 out of 10 times. I'm totally making up this number. I don't remember. I was always kind of annoyed by these stats, and they didn't really tell me much of anything. But the point is, it was hard to beat these guys. The people who upset them usually did not go on to win the tournament. Usually they were exhausted, so the narrative goes. Couldn't win any more matches. This week... Dan Evans beat Djokovic and then won another match. Uh, Andre Rublev beat Nadal in a, a tough, pretty grueling match. He won his semifinal and then advanced to the final. Carl, do you think that the fact that these two guys scored the upsets and then kept winning tells us anything about the the state of Djokovic and, and Nadal or the state of the, the underdogs these days? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess based on... That flip that they did keep winning and against tough opponents that that maybe they're better so that that means that the Nadal Djokovic losses are not as bad and that in fact there were more surprise upsets before or something or like Nadal and Federer were losing to guys who weren't that good but but mostly beating the the really good guys who are their competitors. It, it's a weird one to interpret. I don't think it's that. For instance, Rublev had an easy time against Nadal, who who made this incredible second set comeback to extend that match to a third set. I don't think that that meant that Rublev was was really fresh 24 hours later for a semifinal. So I, I don't know what it means. I mean, we, we do see from other indi- indicators, which themselves are based on results like this, that there's kind of a narrowing at the top of the of the men's game relative to what it was in, in the time period I think you're referencing. So so maybe it's that, although Dan Evans is just kind of an outlier. I mean, he was nowhere near Djokovic in any rating on any surface before that result. So I don't know what to make of that one. Yeah, that is a particularly weird one. And I want to talk about the, the slice a little bit and some things about the surface in a minute. But you already mentioned the fact that there's some narrowing at the top of the men's game. A big part of that is how many ELO points Djokovic lost from losing to Dan Evans. I mean, Dan Evans had single-digit career wins on clay at tour level. I mean, this this truly came out of nowhere. Like, the fact that Evans is ranked just around number 30 in the world, I think it really hides how extreme of an upset this was. And because Djokovic lost all these ELO points, he fell down to, I think his ELO rating is 2135, which is... I wish I, I could look up what it was last week. I should probably complain to the owner of Tennis Abstract about that. Um, but he's now leads Daniel Medvedev by only eight points. So basically a tie at the top of the ELO ratings. And I tweeted last night that Djokovic at 21.35 is far behind Naomi Osaka at 21.80. And you don't even have to go back to the Federer-Nadal prime years. You can just go back to Djokovic a year or two ago and... Normally, the top man was way ahead of the field. The top women were clustered at the top of their field. And to the extent that we can compare men's and women's ELO ratings, which isn't perfect, it's not apples to apples comparison, but they're basically on the same scale and tell us something about dominance. Normally, the men's rating was that number one was way higher than the women's number one rating. And now that's flipped. So, I mean, do you think that's. That's right. I mean, it still seems pretty clustered in the women's game, and Evans or not, like I still think of Djokovic as a, as a pretty strong number one. Like it, 
do you think that Djokovic has fallen back to the pack or is Elo misleading us here? I think he has fallen back. You know, Elo takes his results away from majors very seriously in a way that maybe our kind of selective memory and, and tennis writ large doesn't. And he's had some setbacks. I mean, he had that loss to Sonego in, in Vienna that wasn't even close, which is not something Elo takes into account. And at the time, it was kind of, oh, well, you know, he's got what he needs for number one. This isn't that important a match. He wants some rest. And we, we hear that at times about top players toward the end of the season and, and some weird losses. But, uh, you know, you've, got, you've also got to throw in his strange loss at the U.S. Open. Maybe we don't chalk up a default based on behavior outside of, of the court of play or on the court of play in between points. We don't, we don't say that that affects our opinion of him as a, as how likely he is to win the next match. And we don't expect him to ever default like that again. But, you know, I think Elo counts that as a loss as well. So if it does, I mean, there's another uh, pretty poor loss, uh, not as bad as Evans on clay. Uh, I, I am still curious. I think since you, you're the, uh, proprietor of these ELO ratings and the expert behind them. How does how does the the gap between Djokovic and Medvedev narrow as much as it does? I guess Medvedev didn't play a match, so this is one clay tournament where he doesn't lose his first match. Uh, is that like if Medvedev had entered and lost, would would this have potentially kept the gap between him and Djokovic closer, or is it sort of baked in that not much is expected because it's on clay, so it doesn't affect our view of him as much overall? Kind of half and half. Um, so if if we look at the where their clay ratings are now, I just clicked in the wrong place, so I'm I'm stalling to get the numbers that I want. Um, Djokovic's clay elo now is 2049, which I think is second to Nadal. So I think before this tournament, I know before this tournament, his clay elo, which was a 50-50 balance of a, a, a an elo rating based purely on clay results and his overall elo. His the number I use for projecting matches was higher than Nadal's, and I know people hate that. I kind of hate that. It doesn't really seem right. But point being, he was considered to be the best player on clay. So the fact that he lost to anyone is revising our estimate of him pretty severely. The fact that he lost to Evans is revising even more severely. Medvedev's clay elo is two hundred points lower than that. So if he lost Evans, he would have lost some points. I don't have a great intuition of exactly how many, but I mean, right now they're separated by eight points, um, Djokovic and Medvedev. So if Medvedev had lost any match, he would have lost at least a few. So instead of an eight-point gap, it would have been, you know, whether it's 11 or 21 or 31, I don't know. But it would have been more. The question, though, is if Medvedev had entered... um, if he had lost, that could mean a couple different things. It could mean a first-round loss against someone he shouldn't lose to. It could mean he wins a match or two, gets to the quarters, loses to someone who maybe he should beat. But in that case, like he might have ticked up a, a few points. Like the the fact that his rating is so low means on clay, his rating is so low means that one or two wins would be a surprise. So if he had been able to make that happen, then. I mean, maybe this would have been the week that he would have narrowly overtaken Djokovic for number one in ELO. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't think you answered the the gender question, though, Carl. What do you... I guess you, you did, too, and you, you think that, that the, the field is flattening somewhat. Do you think it's flattening to the point that we can compare the men's field to the women's field? I think that maybe the gaps at the very top are comparable it, it still feels 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 not a great word in an analytic show but based on what i what i can summon from recent women's and men's results it feels to me like there are more women clustered near the top uh but that may be largely driven by majors and just how many women have won majors recently and maybe the men's field is just like not quite caught up in terms of major results. But if, if we looked more holistically, then it is as balanced at the top. I mean, Rublev is a good example just in that in various ways of, of, of rating men, you could say he's been like the most consistent or maybe at least in the top two or three most cons- consistently successful men. But he's had real trouble breaking into the top of the rankings and, um, you know, into 
major into major and masters titles. So uh, I, I guess it depends on if we're fo- if we're weighting majors a lot more heavily the way the tennis world generally does, or if we're looking more holistically. In which case, I think it, it does seem pretty comparable. And I guess one one issue as well is is the case with both Osaka and Medvedev, and that so many of their results are on hard courts. This is especially true with Osaka that. He, she's not getting a bonus from that, but if she were entering every clay court event and losing a lot of early rounds, then that would bring her, her rating down some. Uh, not as much as if she were losing on hard courts, but same thing with Medvedev. If he were entering every week and losing in the first round, he would go down some. So th- there is a bit of a bias towards the people who play predominantly on one surface, and I just kind of trust that evens out. And the the post-pandemic tennis calendar has made it a little tougher to to trust that. Um, but that is a factor. So it's possible that Osaka towering over everyone at a 2180 rating right now, maybe she doesn't quite deserve to be that high. She certainly belongs near the top or at the top, but maybe she doesn't, um, doesn't belong to set, doesn't deserve to set things apart quite so much. And the other factor that you're hinting at, Carl, is we can, I'm talking about the numbers at the top, but if you look at the, the pack right below that, I mean, in, on the men's list, there are the top six men are all within a hundred points of each other. Uh, on the women's list, number four through ten are all within sixty-five points of each other. I mean, some of them are so close that they're basically tied. Muguruza, Sabalenka, Andreescu are four, five, six, and they're all within fifteen points of each other. I mean, some of what I think we we t- we assume about how flat the women's field is right now is that group right there. I mean, I think if we see Osaka enter a hardcore event, we know she's the favorite, but if she's not there, then yeah, the field really flattens out fast. Uh, to awkwardly segue, speaking of flattening out, let's talk about this Dan Evans slice. Um, it's never worked on a play before. It seemed to work against Djokovic. Do you think that was a factor in him being able to upset Djokovic that he has this weapon that isn't very common among clay court players? Maybe. Uh, I, I don't think of the slice generally as being very effective against Djokovic. And I, I can picture him even from that match, many individual moments where he seemed to handle it really well and, and redirect it at will and, and it didn't like lure him into errors. And, and he also is comfortable responding with the slice, uh, which isn't maybe as good or as practiced as Evans, or at least not as good relative to his drive backhand as Evans' slice is to his. But um, I guess we got to look for something and <laughs> Evans does have a really good slice. I mean, he, we, we were trading emails this week and he's kind of an outlier in, in the modern game and, and several stats. And one of them is just how often he goes to it. And he, he didn't really vary from that formula on clay, even though there's, there's reasons to kind of doubt the relative use of slice on clay compared to other surfaces, especially faster surfaces. Um, but it, it worked for him enough to, to beat four straight opponents who were much more accomplished on clay than, than he ever had been. So uh, I, to my eye, it, it looked effective. I'm not sure if it was the difference, but at least it, it kept him neutral in enough points uh, to allow his, his other weapons in particular is inside out forehand when players couldn't find his slice uh, to come to the fore. But I don't know what the numbers say. I don't, I don't think we have charts for all four matches, right? Not for all four. We do have a chart for the, the Djokovic match. Um, and from that chart, I was trying to check the exact number, but I remember being struck by just how long the rallies were. And you, you mentioned that the, the Evan slice was able to keep him in rallies. So here we go. Um, average rally length in that match was 6.7 shots. Um, I don't have all Djokovic matches handy in one place, but just looking at his last 20 matches, which you can find on his player page on Tennis Abstract, a few other clay court matches, it was, he did get to six shots per point against Schwartzman, but only 4.7 against Kasparud, um, 4.7 against Tsitsipas in the French Open semifinal last year, 5.7 against Nadal. So, I mean, it's not incredibly long but the fact that dan evans was generating almost an average rally length of seven shots and that being greater than the same guy matching up with nandal or carino busta or diego schwartzman or casper root i mean that tells me something's going on i'm not entirely sure it's a positive i mean it, it seems like 
for a lot of guys, the way to upset Djokovic is to come out really swinging and don't give him a chance to to work the point. But it it seemed to to work the other way for Evans. I mean, do you think Djokovic was just being too passive and maybe maybe assuming that he could win this without needing to bring out any any new or creative tactics? Maybe, although he he did spray a lot of errors and seemed frustrated by the pace. And I, I agree that my intuition would say the way to beat Djokovic is is to <laughs> to just, you know, out hit him. And I can think of some examples of Djokovic losses like that. But I can also think of examples of where he does get very frustrated by, by players who are more passive, keep the ball in play. I, I would Evans wouldn't be in my top twenty list of who I would have expected to try that tactic and probably not top fifty of succeed with it, but Gilles Simone, who's probably number one on that list, uh, had that five-setter against Djokovic where Djokovic hit 100 on forced errors, which probably was like a sort of normal rate in terms of percentage of shots. But there were just so many points and so many shots in each point that Djokovic just eventually lost patience in a lot of them or, you know, just eventually succumbed to the numbers and and missed. Uh, But with with Evans in particular, well, 6.7 rally length average rally length against Djokovic is a big number and it looks like by far the biggest number of the match charts we've we've got for Evans mostly not on clay um he does tend to have a pretty passive approach in terms of the scores you use for rally aggressiveness maybe or aggression and maybe you could expand on what that means, but I think zero is, is kind of typical, in which case Evans would be very far below that uh, and also was very far below that uh, in his loss to Federer, which was probably the last time that the tennis world was paying close attention to him back in Doha uh, earlier in the season. So so maybe this, this is a reflection of, of going to the slice so much. It's such a neutralizing shot. It can really extend rallies. Um, but... Do you, do you think it, that Evans is is actually a fairly passive player generally? Well, the fact that we're talking about his slice so much is some hint. Like having a a backhand slice isn't a guarantee that we're talking about a passive player. But we also don't. Evans is it doesn't have the game style of like a, a Dimitrov or Federer where it's a defensive shot that opens up other offensive shots. I mean, Evans can hit a good forehand, but he's not a big server. He doesn't have the big forehand weapon. He does go to the net, but it's not like he's a a constant net rusher. So if he's not attacking on the backhand, that doesn't leave anywhere else that he's really attacking. So the, the rally aggression numbers you mentioned, his career average is minus 54. And I know that number is kind of meaningless out of context so let me give you some context like you say carl zero is average a negative number means less aggressive than average a positive number means more and they generally sit between minus 100 and and positive 100 so karlovich and dustin brown are around plus 100 um mats vilander and gilles simone as you mentioned they're at uh, around minus 100 so there's some guys who are more passive than evans looking at my career leaderboard here there's looks like maybe there's 20 guys with um with a few charted matches and this is all of history we're talking about now since i mentioned vlander um 20 guys who are more passive than evans one of them is andy murray richard gasquet diego schwartzman gail Malfi's are all in the minus 60s but that's the sort of thing we're talking about like we're talking about a guy without any big weapons that he is often attacking with and i don't i'd be interested to to know how those guys fare against Djokovic. I'm guessing that on average, it's like anybody else. Djokovic knows how to beat them. He knows how to beat Murray, although he hasn't always. Uh, he knows how to beat Schwartzman and Gasquet and all those guys. So I'm, I'm not sure if that's a key to this particular match, but it does, I mean, maybe if, some, if, if there is something to that, it tells us that Djokovic is susceptible to more game styles than I thought. Since I've been, I've been really pressing this narrative that the way to beat Djokovic is to come out swinging like like Sitsipas would on a hard court or Rublev would on a hard court and that is maybe the question then like does this mean that Djokovic is is newly beatable if someone like someone who's passive but not you know Rafael Nadal or one of the greats of all time can can come out and beat him that way on a clay court like 
I guess a, a different way to phrase that question is like assuming Djokovic doesn't just win everything and play Nadal a bunch of times. Like, will you be looking at his matches against the non-usual suspects? So not just Sitsipas, Rublev, and those guys. Like, do you think he's more vulnerable to someone like Schwartzman or maybe Kasparud than he was a couple of years ago? Yeah, that's possible. I, I mean, it, it's it's difficult someone in this conversation to separate style from just how good someone is. So for instance, Rafa on that leaderboard list is one of the most passive players of all time. And it's weird. It's a little weird to use the word passive for some of these players because there's there's sort of sustained aggression, but safety in Rafa's style and 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 a and a knock on effect that you can wear wear down your opponent for the next point and for the next game um, without taking much risk or, or dragging things out. But it, it translates to long rallies and uh, often the the opponent determining the outcome of the point in a sense. Um, so you could say, well, if Rafa's the guy who's beaten Djokovic 27 times, then that must be because that style rattles Djokovic. But it might also just be because Rafa's potentially the greatest player of all time. And Murray, you know, one of the best ever has beaten him 11 times, but Djokovic has beaten him 25. And Murray is, is it could be because of Murray just being hard to beat, period, and not necessarily because of his style. Uh, that said, you know, it does make sense that when a player ages, maybe it becomes more effective to to wear them down. Uh, Djokovic has, has been pretty healthy in the last couple of years, but before that faced some uh, real challenges with his body. And, you know, one of the other names towards the bottom of that list uh, among the most passive players is Roberto Batista Agut, who's had some big wins over Djokovic in recent years. So, yeah, I do think I, I would watch those matches, although in so many ways, Djokovic is so well-rounded, whether we're talking about surface, um, serve versus return. He's, he's stronger on return, but he, he does have a very effective service game. Um, he's rounded between backhand and forehand. I think he's also rounded between like opponent game style. He's basically going to be the favorite against just about everybody in just about every situation, but maybe within that slight edge, uh, including relative to earlier in his career, um, to, to the guys who can, who can grind with him a bit more. And it turns out Evans can be a clay grinder, at least for this one tournament. I, I'm curious if you think this is more of a, a fluke uh, than something that will herald a, a breakthrough for Evans on the surface. Yeah, that is that is a really tricky question because one data point we have is Evans is winning on clay in doubles as well. He, I think he and Neil Skupski made the finals in Monte Carlo in doubles, and then they won their first match in, I think they're playing in Belgrade. Um, not 100% sure if it's Belgrade or Barcelona. Pretty sure it's Belgrade. Um but they beat Continen and Roger Vaseline. It's in Barcelona, sorry. So, but they, they they beat Continen and Roger Vaseline, a very good doubles team, on the clay in Barcelona. So, I mean, normally when you think of these guys who just can't play on clay, like you would have said about Evans two weeks ago, you don't see them grinding out three set wins over former doubles number ones in doubles as well as winning in singles. So it seems like something has changed here. And maybe it's just it's just confidence. I mean, I, it, that's not something that I generally like to admit to believing in on the tennis abstract podcast, but it does seem to happen sometimes with guys on clay. I mean, it, it's a, it's a different service that is a surface. The tactics are different. The, um, the risk reward type of calculations for the shots you rely on are different than they are on other surfaces. But I mean, it's still tennis and somebody like Dan Evans, if he's the 30th best tennis player in the world, you'd think he'd be able to figure it out. So maybe he just needed, sort of permission to to say, you know what, I think I can win this match. And maybe the doubles matches are doing that too. So, I mean, I'm not going to put any money on him to win even one or two matches in Barcelona. But, I mean, I, I won't be surprised the way that I was from each and every win last week, not just the, the Djokovic win. So, I mean, it, it's always nice to see guys who seem to be very one-dimensional surface-wise turn out not to be. Um, I, mean, it, it, I feel like that teaches you more about the game and about the, how they play than uh, than just staying one dimensional does. But uh, but yeah, I mean, we, we we definitely would like to see some some more information on that. So let's see. Next thing I wanted to talk about 
was, oh, I was going to jump way ahead, but let's let's go back to, to Nadal and Rublev. So this is the other big upset of the week, and you're t- we're pointing out how Nadal is so steady. He's got this really low aggression rate in rallies. Um, just to re- recap a little, we're talking about this this rally aggression score, and that's calculated just by basically just a ratio of how many point-ending shots, whether winners or unforced errors, per shot. Uh, and then I convert that into a, a scale between minus 100 and plus 100. But Nadal's very low on that, largely because he doesn't hit a lot of errors. And I remember watching some some old matches of Nadal where it seems like he never misses. And that was a striking thing to me in this Rublev-Nadal match. Is, I mean, Nadal still looks very good. He's hitting great ground strokes. He's getting stuff back that most other people can't get back. But he does miss. Not always when he's he's absolutely pushed into a corner. And I'm wondering what you think, Carl. Is this... Is this all the Rublev pressure that's sort of generating forced, unforced errors? Or maybe Rafa feels like he needs to do more and he's just taking more risk even on routine shots? Like, why is Rafa making mistakes now? Great question. Uh, if we had charts for every match of his, then maybe just a simple, like, unforced error rate over time would be somewhat instructive. I, the, the last four charts, and I know I and our listeners could be among the people who fill these in, the last four we've got are all losses, it looks like. So it, it might be a little circular because he's definitely going to miss more in losses or on average. Um, but, you know, there's, there's a popular narrative in tennis and also in other sports that makes intuitive sense that when a player is aging, they're going to try to spare their body some um, some some effort and some pain, and I don't know if the stats would show that that Rafa is deliberately trying to shorten points. The, the rally aggression score for the last fifty two weeks for him is right in line with his career average, so it's not clear he's being more aggressive. But it would make sense for him to take more risk and that might lead to missing if what we're saying is he's actually just as aggressive as before but he's missing more often that starts to feel like either footwork or you know some 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 other issue with his body that we don't know about or that maybe the opponents are like catching up to him and you know unforced errors are an imperfect uh, measure and what can look like an unforced error might reflect slightly more pressure, slightly worse position, and maybe Rublev just just made him miss more. Maybe maybe Rafa was was hitting balls that normally would neutralize points or put him ahead against other opponents, and Rublev was just standing right there, taking balls on the rise, uh, putting them hard and deep where he wanted to, and, and Rafa had to had to go for more. Uh, I don't know. I, I think it's really hard to separate from the stats, but I agree from the eye. It it did feel kind of not Rafa-like, and that in some of these other recent surprising losses, there's been some of that vibe as well. Yeah, it's really interesting how much we expect from Nadal, that he set the standard so high that seeing him make any mistakes at all seems like a totally new or altered game style. And I remember during the pandemic when Roland Garros was publishing some uh, historical matches. One of the matches they they put on YouTube was the 2006 battle between Nadal and Paul Henry Matu, which went to four long sets, tons of really long, grindy rallies. Matu was playing great. Uh, it looked like it was going his way for a while, and Nadal just did not miss. Like it was it it was just unbelievable. Like he, he wasn't always hitting the sort of banana shot winners that make the highlight reels, but no matter what Matu did, smashes, volleys cross-court, ground strokes, whatever, and Nadal was getting them back over and over again. And he still does that. I mean, he did that some against Rublev. Um, but he doesn't do it as unfailingly as he used to. And like, you're speculating, Carl, what is it that's that's changing? And I, I wonder if some of it is just age. Like, we talked a lot a couple episodes ago about the sort of peripheral camera stats that baseball has, that camera... that. that tennis doesn't and one of the ones i've been looking at lately in baseball is is sprint speed that uh, they track how fast everybody runs which is important if you want to know who's legging out a single or stealing bases and stuff like that i would love to know exactly how fast these guys are going and i mean obviously we know nadal's fast Uh, he always has been but he's so good at everything else that we don't think of him as just this one-dimensional speedster but if that's part of what your game is built around like if you lose a step, that's huge. I mean, do, do you think it's possible, Carl, that that's part of what's going on, that he's 
lost a step or even half a step and that makes a bigger difference for him than it would for someone who plays more aggressively and ends points more quickly yeah i think it's definitely possible especially when you consider that it could have been happening over the last few years but that his adjustments have sort of papered over that enough especially at the french open so that we don't we don't notice it but that maybe it's caught up to him so to speak so you know, it may, maybe he's he had figured out like how to adjust his game enough so it didn't come into play, uh, but but now he slowed down even more. I mean, every everything seems somewhat up in the air because of just how weird this last year has been. I know your results have showed that things are about as predictable as they always are, or at least last last you checked in. But it does seem like a little harder to evaluate how much of what we see at a given tournament is is real and how much might just be driven by that all the issues that go into training and travel and testing and, and other words starting with T that I can't think of right now. Do you think that's plausible or have you kind of tossed that out because you've seen that the outcomes look pretty predictable, even if we're being swayed by the Evans Djokovic results? I think we can mostly toss it out. Um, the, the only exception for me would be the, the guys who aren't playing very much. So when, I mean, it, I was going to say when Federer comes back, of course, when Federer comes back, we won't know what to expect from him. I mean, we won't, we won't expect very much on clay. But if someone is injured and, or they, they miss a lot of time or like Benoit Paire is is complaining about how tough it, life is on tour or Dominic Team talking about the same stuff this past week. For some players, I guess you could put some some weight on that. But for the guys who are playing pretty much their regular schedule, you made this point several episodes ago, Carl, that one of the things that separates the, the, good, the good players from the rest of the pack is how adaptable they are. And if someone has survived pandemic tennis for, what, seven, eight months now since the U.S. Open... I mean, I think they've pretty much adjusted. I mean, maybe there's some effect. Maybe we'll we'll hear about it. I guess Djokovic has a documentary that's coming out soon, so maybe we'll get some insight into that. But, I mean, if if the results were pretty much as we would expect or as predictable as we would expect for the first four to six months of the pandemic, then, I mean, if anything, we'd expect that effect to go down now. So, I mean, at this point, I think I look at Evans Djokovic the way that I always would have that, yeah, it's weird. No, I don't expect it to happen again, or at least to happen exactly the same way. But it, it does, it, it, the way that ELO adjusts how it estimates players' ratings, it adjusts how I estimate how players are playing. And it tells me a lot about Evans I didn't know. It tells us a little bit about Djokovic that I didn't know. And I think that's even more true for Nadal Rublev, because Rublev is the guy who's seems to be getting better almost every week. Uh, Nadal is someone who, like I say, we, we it's understandable to think he's slowing down, that some of the things that have made him great would start to fade. So there, there's at least a narrative that works completely independent of the pandemic. Of course, I think we're both skeptical of any sort of neat narrative that explains these things, but that one certainly seems plausible. And I mean, let's, let's dig in a little bit more on this Rublev-Nadal matchup and Rublev seems to hit as hard as anybody on tour and you mentioned that that Nadal has is sort of on the back foot all the time against Rublev I mean do you think that Rublev creates challenges for Nadal that most other players don't yeah I wouldn't want to overstate it from one match just because Nadal owned him earlier even on hard courts uh, in their in their two meetings one of them last year when we, we had the current Rublev or or close to it but I, and also, you know, one asterisk that maybe has nothing to do with the pandemic, but Rafa was coming off an injury, and this was his his first tournament on clay. It usually is, but he he hadn't been playing much and um, had been dealing with this injury. It wasn't obvious to my eye watching the Rublev match that that played a role, and he'd looked really good in the in the earlier rounds. But it it could be a factor. But yeah, I think Rublev is of one type that has troubled Rafa before. He hits incredibly hard, in particular for a guy who just doesn't miss much. Like his consistency, it's it's true with Medvedev too, but Medvedev is, seems less aggressive. But that Rublev can just so consistently put the ball in the court while hitting it hard and near the lines um, makes him, you know, the rare player who can actually test Nadal, um, like stay with him in a rally, but also keep pursuing the advantage and eventually 
winning the point um, with a shot that would be quite risky for other players and just wouldn't pay off in the long run. So, yeah, I, I think there's there's a real challenge there for Rafa. I'd still favor him against Rublev at the French Open, probably, I don't know, 65-35, something like that, maybe 70-30, but uh, could certainly see uh, on other surfaces a, a very tough uh, matchup. What do you think? Like, Where does Rublev rank in terms of threats to Nadal in Paris? Yeah, that's a that's a tough one, and, and like you said earlier in our conversation today, we tend to make these judgments based on the biggest matches. So my first thought naturally is that the big threat is Djokovic, uh, but based on this last week, you have to say Rublev, you have to say Stefano Tsitsipas, who we haven't talked about yet, but probably should. Uh, and then there's the question of of what's going to happen in over five sets instead of three, but. Judging from how Rublev bounced back from losing the second set in Monte Carlo, I mean, watching that match, you could one of the one of the fascinating things about watching matches on a replay, as I often do, is it, it makes me feel smart compared to the the commentators, which I, I try to adjust for. I try not to to let that go to my head since I do know the future, but it seemed like once Nadal came back and won the second set it seemed like a foregone conclusion he was going to run away with a match. Like, that's the direction the momentum goes. We've seen this movie before. Rublev isn't the clay court master, so maybe the the median projection would have been 6-3 Nadal, with maybe Nadal having an 80% chance of winning that third set. I don't know what the betting market said, but I'll bet it was heavily in favor of Nadal. So Rublev not only won the match, but he turned around that momentum and did so in a big way. I mean, the the third set was pretty lopsided. Uh, And... To me, I think I think that says more about his chances against Nadal in Paris than the the win overall does, because that's the that seems to be the thing. I mean, that was a factor in that Mathieu match I was just talking about. That you not only have to beat Nadal, but over five sets, at some point he's going to come back. He's going to play well, and then most people are just steamrolled at that point. Uh, I mean, there probably aren't that many scores that are like seven six six three six one, but. Thinking back on Nadal playing at Roland Garros, it seems like every match is like that. Like they keep it close for a while, like Yannick Sinner did last year, and then then they realize, oh yeah, I'm on court with the best clay court player of all time. I don't have a chance, and then they start playing like it. But I don't get the sense Rublev's going to do that either. And I think I feel the same way about Stefano Tsitsipas. We haven't seen that head to head for a little while, but but Carl, without having the the recent memory to fall back on I mean do you think that's a a fair estimate that Tsitsipas is as much a threat as Rublev is in a best of five against Nadal and Clay yes absolutely and uh, you know I think we saw in Monte Carlo we saw in Barcelona today in his demolition of a clay court specialist that Tsitsipas is uh that his his clay elo doesn't lie like he's really um he's really got like special gifts on clay not that he isn't a threat elsewhere um so yeah i think i think those those two would be at the top of the list with djokovic i I know we we don't really know where team is right now he still sticks in my mind because he has this this incredible series of of wins over rafa on clay still you know loses to him more than he wins but it's it's like pretty unusual in rafa's career to have someone who's such a threat on clay um but yeah, I, I I was thinking that maybe Rublev wasn't going to be as much of a um, a risk to to Rafa at the French Open because of his his sort of disappointing Grand Slam results. And then I checked myself, and Rublev is about as good in best of five as he is in best of three. I think a lot of the best players are better in best of five because they get you know easy draws in the first couple of rounds, and because you get sort of more sample size, but it's more like he gets to pretty good rounds in the Grand Slams and then has disappointing losses, but he's not he's not much weaker in best of five. Do you do you think there is some sort of pattern of like younger players needing time to to get as good in best of five as best of three, as good in slams as elsewhere, like we've seen with Zverev, or or maybe not? I mean, I think Tsitsipas has kind of been strong in slams for, from a young age, so maybe that's there's not a real pattern there. Yeah, I don't know. I'd I'd have to to check on that. I think Stephanie Kowalczyk has done some work on performances in best of five versus best of three, and found some players who seem to to, to consistently overperform in one or the other. Uh, that doesn't directly answer your question about whether that's true of young players. And 
that's another one of those things where there's a neat narrative for it. You can get some players to tell you in interviews that, yeah, they're nervous. It's a big stage playing their first time on Arthur Ashe or Chatrier or whatever. Uh, so it's, it's certainly possible, but, but yeah, you have to, you have to somehow reconcile the fact that some guys struggle and then some guys come out of the gates and, you know, make the semifinal at the Australian Open like Sitsipas did. So, so yeah, it's, it, it's tough. I would hesitate to draw any, any broad conclusions for all players, but, and another factor just in the last 10, 15 years is we've had these successive generations of young players who end up just hitting the wall against the big four and the other players of that generation. So it looks like young players are having trouble at slams, but really they're having trouble anywhere where they have to beat Nadal, Djokovic and Federer and to some extent, Eddie Murray and San Vavrinka. So maybe this generation is different already or will be different when the, the results are all in because they don't have quite the same brick wall facing them in every corner of the grand slams. Um, so about Sitsipas, um, he just dominated that final against Rublev. And I don't think that was what anyone expected. Like, I think plenty of people would have favored Tsitsipas, but the fact that he he just ran straight through that final was was far beyond expectations. And one thing that struck me is, uh, this was on my Expected Points podcast on, on Monday, that he won more than half of his first serve points in two shots or less. So either an unreturned serve or a plus one winner. Um, and... He won 13 of 16 points where the rallies were 10 shots or more. And looking at the rally length, the breakdown, he pretty much dominated the really short points. He really dominated the really long points. And then he he won less than 50% of the middle two segments that I break out, the four to six shot rallies and the seven to nine shot rallies. And talking about narratives can you come up with a neat narrative for that carl is, is that the the secret to sits success the short points and the long ones and give up on everything in between <laughs> oh the sample sizes get get so small um yeah i mean it's uh it's really hard to to know what to make of those stats it does seem to say something about maybe clay and like you know, Tsitsipas can press the advantage over Rublev, although you'd think that a lot of his advantages in longer points would have extended to Rafa too, coming from a different side, but um, some similarities in kind of the balls they hit and the spin they hit. Um, so I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, the last time they met was not that long ago and Rublev won in straight sets and uh, Rublev, I think, uh, I'm trying to read your, your rally stats, but um, I think that he did pretty well in all the different lengths in, in that match. So, um, yeah, I think that in general, it was impressive in that in that final, just how much was decided early in the in the points, given that they were playing on pretty slow clay, or at least that's typically how Monte Carlo has played. But just how both these guys can kind of... Um, still play that power service game and Sitsipas played the much better one in the final it really wasn't close it wasn't as close as the score um but it 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 showed kind of the weapons that they can bring to to any surface um since you mentioned that so the last match they played was the Rotterdam semifinal and yeah. and Rublev won that one and clearly the conditions are very different but since since you mentioned the the rally length breakdown um Sitsipas he lost the match, but Sitsipas won just barely more of the shortest points, the one to three shot rallies. Um, Rublev won 67% of four to sixes, 71% of seven to nines. <laughs> but then Sitsipas won 61.5% of 10 pluses. So it was actually the same, I guess, the You're same right. shape of the curve. It's it's weird, right? That is that is a weird pattern. Yeah, I I'm picturing what do the middle points look like? I think we both have like pretty clear views of the three or fewer shots and the, the well, 10 or the, longer. Yeah. The, the, the sort of neat narrative that I have in my head, which is, it's not neat at all, but I mean, Sitsipas is a little better as a peer server. He, he, I think he's underrated as how dominant his serve is. Um, Rublev's good, but not at the same level. So that's the, that's the one to threes. Um, it's not a big edge in that Rotterdam match. They're basically tied, but the, the, the better peer server is the one who's going to, to dominate that category. And then the 10 pluses is 
the patience, the point construction, the figuring out what, what to do when your normal weapons don't work. And that sort of works as well. I mean, Rublev has amazing weapons, but you don't think of him as really a court tactician. Um, I'm not sure that's the first thing that comes to mind for Sitsipas either, but if I had to pick one of those guys who's willing to wait it out, willing to figure out how to win a point, that seems to be Sitsipas. And then everything in between, again, I mean, speaking ridiculously broadly and making this up as I go along, everything in between is like the ground stroke weapons doing their business. And I mean, Rublev has the ground stroke weapons of anybody on tour, definitely more than Sitsipas. So that's the four to six and the seven to nine categories. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm sure that it would take about two minutes to to find some some stats that would prove that story wrong, but that works, right? I mean, is there any? There, there's no big gaps in that story, are there? No, that makes sense. I mean, I think you could way broaden the sample size by seeing if like they're both outliers generally in their charted matches in in rally lengths like that, and that would suggest some opportunity, I guess, like. I don't know exactly what it is, but it suggests that maybe Rublev could work on his tactics if that really is what's driving the longer rallies. And that, um, I don't know, Tsitsipas has to, I mean, you don't want to like over-engineer the interpretation and say, oh, well, if only Tsitsipas can force every rally to 10 shots, he's golden because that's not a sustainable strategy. Um, But it, it at least is telling about their strengths and weaknesses. And like I said, it would take two minutes to disprove all this. And the match they played before Rotterdam was at Roland Garros last fall. And um, Rublev dominated that match and won more than 50% in all four of these rally categories we're talking about. But he was actually worst in the middle categories, the four to six shots and the seven to nine shots. So um, if if my theory can hold any water, it, um, it needs to ac- account for that as well. Jeff, there was something that we we touched on with Evans. I think it's it's somewhat relevant for Tsitsipas too. So the, these are two guys with one-handed backhands. Evans hits a slice way more than Tsitsipas does, but Tsitsipas probably uses it more than the than the average player, or at least a lot of one-handed backhands do. And I we we sort of agree that clay typically isn't the best surface for the slice, but maybe didn't talk more about whether that's true and, and why that would be true. Do you think that it, that is true? And if so, why, why do you think that is the case? Well, I was hoping we'd talk about this, actually, and I was kind of hoping you would give me an answer and I wouldn't <laughs> have to come up with one. Um, I mean, it seems like it, it can be part of an effective game on clay. It's You mentioned early on, it's it can be a weapon for Dan Evans. It obviously can be a weapon on grass. So the guys we think of as having the attacking slices or the sort of approach shot slice weapons like Federer and Federer's followers, uh, that's a grass court tactic. And you can use it on fast hard courts as well. People have to a lot of success and prize money. It doesn't really work that way on clay. Um, but I mean... You can keep the ball low. What I wonder about with Djokovic, having I, I didn't watch the entire Evans Djokovic match, but watching some highlights from that match, and you think about how effective the drop shot is on clay, right? I mean, a drop shot is basically just an extreme slice, and the reason why it works is the ball just sticks for another second. It doesn't bounce as far as it would on a hard court, so it's 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 more of a drop shot than your average drop shot, I guess. Uh, to put it in in elegantly. So every slice, to some extent, it doesn't bounce through the court. And if it's a bad slice, that's a really bad deal. I mean, it's just sort of inviting the opponent to take a step forward and hit a powerful shot. But if it's a good slice, if it doesn't bounce too high, um, maybe if it forces your opponent to take one more or half a step more of a step forward than, uh, than they wanted to, maybe it keeps people off balance it, it, it like you said Djokovic doesn't have any problem dealing with a slice he hits good slices he can respond to slices just fine but if it does disrupt his footwork a little bit it it, it makes him play rally balls instead of going for winners or, or pushing the point around the way he'd like to maybe there's some benefit there I mean does that tally with what you're thinking Carl that there's maybe it's not an offensive shot but it's not purely a defensive one on clay yeah, I guess that's right. It's, I, I'm not saying there's no use for it. It just seems like it it doesn't bounce as low as on other surfaces, so it's harder to to force an opponent into an error or a defensive shot. Uh, and also, 
when when you give somebody time on a clay court in particular and the ability to step in more than usual like th that is relatively an aggressive position for the opponent more so than on other courts i guess just that you know you might you might be in kind of the same position for a slice and a not slice on a fast court but on, on a clay court being able to move up and have time to set up uh is more valuable i don't know i'm 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 just kind of guessing. I think looking at the numbers of like how much people use it and what the outcome is when they do relative to other courts, it's, it's other shots is instructive. And this is always a decision not in a vacuum. It's always a decision relative to hitting, trying to run around the backhand or hit a uh, non-slice backhand. And, you know, your numbers show that Evans's non-slice backhand is very effective, but it could just be because he's only using it in positions where he's behind in the point anyway, and it, there's there's nothing to lose. So I'm not sure what to make of it. Um, and, and the slice did seem to work for him this past week, but his his career clay record still isn't strong even after this past week. Well, here's another comparison to think about. So we haven't talked about this. I thought we were going to dig into this more. Is the fate of flat hitting ground strokes on clay. And Daniel Medvedev is one of those guys who seems like he has a lot of the tools to be great on clay, but he hits very flat. That's something that doesn't really translate into effectiveness on clay. So if you've got two guys, I know Evans and Medvedev are far, far from all else being equal. But if you have one guy who naturally goes to a slice on clay, doesn't really have a reliable weapon other than that. And another guy who has... A flat backhand that's good, but uh, doesn't have a, a solid topspin option. Like, I wouldn't take either of those if my third choice was Casper Ruud. But if my choice was a good slice backhand or a good flat backhand on a slow clay court like Monte Carlo, like, what would you take? What are the advantages of one or the other of those? Well, I guess at least a slice is a much more of a change of pace and change of of spin and rhythm seems especially useful on a clay court with longer rallies and, and giving variety maybe helps more. And the advantages of, of a, of a flat ball on a fast court kind of penetrating through the court, um, you, you just don't get on a clay court. It, it's, it can sit up so, so well. Um, so maybe I'm biased because of Medvedev's kind of dreadful overall and re especially recent clay record, but it, it seems like the flat hitters are um, at a disadvantage. I think also we've seen some like recent somewhat rough cut analyses that suggest that in fact they they tend to do worse on clay relative to other surfaces, uh, whereas spinnier hitters do better. I mean, this is all kind of skewed by, by Rafa probably. Um, and Rafa's also had an incredible success off clay, but he's clearly much better on clay. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's it's not so much that flat hitting is a disadvantage per se, but just that there's so much advantage to topspin on clay relative to other surfaces. I guess that's the same thing. What do you think? Well, what what do you do then if you are Medvedev or you are Dan Evans or fill in the blank? Uh, then your backhand is a limitation on clay courts. You have to accept that. And and one solution is the sort of Jack Sock approach to life, which is to hit every possible forehand. Um, and clay gives you more time to do that, so you can run around more shots. That seems to be the the Ro Roberto Batista Agu solution. He is a fairly flat hitter, but he does well on clay. And he's he's sort of a textbook run around everything you can hit inside out forehands use that as a weapon even if it's not a, a, someone you'd think of as a, a really big forehand uh, so there the, no whether you're a slice guy or a flat hitting backhand guy you can run around some shots and and that's a tactic that works is there some other solution i mean it it, it seems impractical to say Daniel Medvedev, your job this offseason is to learn how to hit more topspin on your backhand. Like It seems like that's only going to go so far. But is there some other way for players with those limitations to overcome those limitations? Yeah, it definitely seems impractical to, to change up your backhand grip and swing to get more spin on on a clay court. I, and, and Medvedev's forehand's pretty flat too, so I don't know how much that would buy him. It 
it's weird to say about Medvedev of all people, but like maybe it's to just accept that you're going to grind even more. Like on hard courts, he gets more reward for his risk and he does take some risks uh, in points when he thinks the time is right. And maybe he's just got to shift his risk reward ratio and, and, and see that like his strength is that he can keep the ball in court and he's very fit and can stay around in matches and, you know, play an even less aggressive style on, on clay. Even less aggressive? Yeah. I thought, I'm, I'm sorry, maybe I misunderstood what you said. I, it, it sounded like you were saying in the beginning that he could be, he would be more aggressive. No, but... I was saying that he's he's getting less reward for his risk on clay because the, oh, okay. the, the, the flat shots that are, you know, harder and hit closer to the lines are, are, are more likely to come back. Um, but he is incredibly, when he wants to just stay in a rally indefinitely, he can. He seems like he can do that over and over again. Would would that work for someone who? It, it just seems like if, if you think of long rallies on clay as kind of a battle of attrition, then the flatter you hit, the more you're giving up with every shot. Like maybe it's just half a half a percent of court position with every shot. But you know, would it even be possible for Medvedev to go toe to toe if he just decided, you know, in today's match against Bautista Agu, I'm going to grind it out until I can grind no more. We're going to play so many 30-shot rallies, the crowd's going to fall asleep. It, it, is, do you really think that would work for him? I mean, Medvedev's record recently on clay is such that he's not getting to the Batista Agutes. He's losing against unseated players in the first round. So I guess I'm just trying to get him to 500 on clay. I'm not aiming very high here. Uh, no, okay. I don't think it would work against people who are better than him at that. But I think he could actually be really good at that just based on his incredibly for a flat hitter he's incredibly consistent and for a tall guy he's a great mover who uh can repeat long rallies over and over in a match and grind and wear down opponents so i think this was one of our hundred questions in episode 100 but what do you think medvedev's best career result is at roland garros Uh, qualifying round three (laughs) uh round of 16 yeah, that's what I was going to say, too. It seems like round of 16, he'll he'll end up drawing, like, Kwon Soon Woo in the second round one year and get a walkover in round three. He'll get there. Um, and last question, then, since we're running up against the end of our time here. Medvedev's definitely not the best player of this generation on clay, as we've gotten into for 10 minutes now. But we're talking about Rublev, Tsitsipas. Um, we haven't mentioned Alexander Zverev's name, but he's in this conversation for this generation. Kaspar Ruud is roughly in the same group, same age as Tsitsipas. Um, of this group, who do you think is the best player on clay for their career? And we're not counting team. He's older, right? He's not in the group. Yeah, let's leave team out. Okay. Um, trying to overcome recency bias, but I... I... I think Tsitsipas. Yeah, I think Tsitsipas too. Recency bias is 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 tricky here, but I think you can make a case for Zverev, but because they're so young and because that there's various good reasons to have reservations about Zverev's maturity and his ability to develop as a player, like I feel like recency bias matters a little bit, or it's not as much of a bias for him as it is for for other players. Like if if Zverev isn't isn't putting up the result, then it might really be telling you something. So, yeah, that definitely leaves Tsitsipas. I'd love to see Kasparu take a step forward and be more of a traditional clay court guy um, who can play at this level, but he hasn't quite shown that yet. So, fingers crossed, you know, represent for Norway and all that. Um, any final thoughts about Monte Carlo before we put this episode to bed, Carl? Well, just so you can put Yannick Sinner in the title, we didn't, <laughs> we didn't include him in that generation, but he might be better than, than the rest. And, you know, was the one who lost to Djokovic just before that Evans match. And, it you know, part of the Tsitsipas answer is just he's he's younger. Like, it doesn't seem like it because he's been a solid presence now for a while. But he's he's over a year younger than Zverev and he's a year younger than Rublev. And that that's a plus as well. Yeah. And it is interesting that Sinner is getting grouped in with these guys because he is so good and playing so well now. But you can make the same point about Sinner that like I mean I don't know whether three years constitutes a generation in tennis but 
looking at the developmental stage of Rublev versus the developmental stage of Yannick Sinner, we're talking about very, very different things. And, I mean, if Rublev peaks early and Sinner peaks late, historians in 10 or 20 years could be thinking them of them as uh, very different generations and for good reason with the gap between their ages. So... Okay, Carl, thank you for joining me this week for episode 106. Thanks, Jeff. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been the Tennis Abstract podcast, um, episode 106. You can find all of our past episodes at podcast.tennisabstract.com. Please subscribe and review us on iTunes and all that stuff that every podcast host asks you to do that I usually forget about. Also, check out my daily podcasts, Expected Points, every weekday about tennis, and The Opener at OpenerPodcast.com about baseball. Um, lots to listen to. If you don't like my voice, then I would not recommend them, but I'm assuming it's not too bad because you've been listening to me for an hour now. So, again, thanks, Carl. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>